Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to jump into a new series of messages today. While you're turning there, whether in a print form or a digital form, let me just take a couple minutes for kind of a housekeeping item. We have coming up here in just about a week and a half our annual business meeting. Every year as a church, we have this opportunity to come together as a church. And sometimes when you hear the term annual business meeting, you think that's a synonym for boring uh, we would like to think better than that. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate all the good things that God is doing for us as a church. We're going to review the uh, things that has happened in the last year. We get an opportunity to thank God for his faithfulness in our finances and get given an opportunity to review those things. You'll see in your bulletin today an insert that has some details uh, not only about the business meeting but as well uh, the selection of our deacon board members, which uh, will happen in part on that evening as well. We'll update you on some new items that night, uh, in particular with regards to some renovation things that uh, we hope to be able to move forward with in the next year to uh, be able to expand for some of the growth that we are experiencing as well. And this is, this is really important. We've had a group of individuals that have met as kind of a constitution and bylaws committee, and there's some things that we're hoping to update as a part of our constitution. And uh, those of you that are uh, members here, you've gone through the official membership process here at Calvary, you'll receive an email later this week that will walk through some of those different things. If you're not a member, you're welcome to join us on Wednesday night, the first for the business meeting. We'll have our regular children's activities. We'll have activities for our students, for our youth as regular, but our different adult classes will be suspended that night um, so that we'll be able to come together in here, seven o'clock. If you're not a member, you're welcome to join us. If you are a member, you've gone through the formal membership process here at Calvary, I sure hope you'll make it a a, a priority to prayerfully uh, be, be praying about the meeting, but also be with us on that night. Just kind of a wonderful opportunity for us to celebrate together, and I hope you'll make it a priority to be here. Psychiatrists have um, established a name for this thing. Sometimes they call it the Paris effect, or they call it the Paris syndrome. Here's what it means. It's, It's sometimes when travelers go to this place, it's the disappointment that many first time visitors to Paris, France, experience after the hyped up expectations of the media. They go there, and there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a year and a half ago about this. They go there and they arrive expecting an affluent and friendly European capital where slim and beautiful Parisians walk around smelling of Chanel. It's what they think they're going to get. Instead of finding a place of romance, beauty, and wealth, they find pavements, that are peppered with cigarette butts and aggravated commuters on packed metro trains. And I thought to myself, this cannot be real. And it is. That there are people that go to Paris and are so distraught by what they experienced because of what their expectations were that the shock is too much to bear, prompting them to seek medical help for symptoms that may include, this is real, that may include irritability, fear, obsession, depressed mood, insomnia, and a feeling of persecution by the French. So you will do better in Toledo. Can I get an amen? Amen. Come on now, this is, this is crazy. But it just points out that sometimes 
we set our expectations for happiness so high that they're just not realistic. We think that certain things will make us happy when it's just not real. And that's probably important for us to consider and think about because of the world that we live in. Have you noticed our world is kind of crazy? Anybody notice this? This is why we're starting this series that we're calling Living Right Side Up in an Upside Down World. Because in so many ways, our world is upside down. And in the world in which we live, if anyone should have joy, if anyone should have peace, if anyone should have confidence, if anybody should make a difference in this upside down world, shouldn't it be the followers of Jesus Christ? Look, if anybody should bring hope to the world, it should be me and it should be you. With the truth of scripture that we know, with the hope of Jesus Christ in our lives, we should be, what's Jesus say? The salt and the light of the world. And the world is pretty messed up. Have you noticed there's some political drama in our world right now? I mean, there's just kind of this turmoil that you see. And probably more than uh, any other time in, in the recent past anyways, there's racial tension in so many ways. You find this rampant immorality. You see dysfunction, not just in our government, not just in business. You see it in homes. There's economic struggle, a pretty good summation of the crazy world that's upside down. Would you agree? But it's not new. Look, we've seen these kinds of times all throughout history. In fact, if you you look back 2,000 years to the time that Jesus came into, you would find much of the same thing. There was political turmoil. There was racial tension. There was dysfunction that you would find in government and in business and in families. You would find these unrealistic expectations that people had. You would have rampant immorality. And you had, even in the midst of that time, these these very difficult economic struggles. That was the world that Jesus came into, especially in first century Israel. And what's interesting, read through the Gospels. Did Jesus complain I mean, if you look, do you, do you find him moaning and, and griping and whining about the world in which he lived? You don't see Jesus complaining about the world. You see him focused on changing the world, on making a difference, literally on living right side up in an upside down world. So for the next few weeks, we're, we're going to take some time and we're going to look at probably Jesus' most famous sermon, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. We usually refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. But it's not the first time that we're introduced to the preaching of Jesus in Scripture. In fact, the first time that we get a sermon from him, it's actually just one sentence. It's not, it's not three chapters long, but it, it shows us the heart and something that's really important. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 says this, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And if you read through the the, the Bible, especially the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see this term, the kingdom of heaven, or Jesus speaking about the kingdom over and over and over again. So what does he mean when he talks about the kingdom? When we think of a kingdom, oftentimes we think of that word, maybe even with like medieval terms, we think of a region, kind of a geographical area that's ruled over by a specific king. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking geographically. He's not talking about a region, but he's talking more not so much about a physical area, but he's talking more about a spiritual area that he will be the king of. The kingdom of heaven is not a territory, but a transformation. 
See, it's not this territory of land, this geographic region. Instead, it's a transformation that happens in our hearts when we recognize that the one who is in control, the one who is in charge, the real king is Jesus. See, the kingdom of heaven has far more to do with who the king is, not where it is. And so Jesus preaches this, and he says, look, the kingdom of heaven, you understand this, with me coming, Jesus says, with who I am, with the truth that I'm about to bring you, I am bringing to you God's kingdom on earth, the kingdom of heaven has come. And so in Matthew chapter five, he starts what we probably know as his most famous sermon. Look at this, Matthew chapter five, beginning with verse one. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, kind of significant here what you see, that there were all these crowds that were coming to Jesus. They wanted him to heal them. They wanted him to, to teach them. And as they were coming, it says that he goes up on this mountainside, and it says that he sits down, which is actually pretty significant. Because in, in the Jewish culture at that time, especially like if you would go to the synagogue, in the synagogue there was what was called the seat of Moses. And the teacher in the synagogue, when it was time for them to speak and teach according to God's word, instead of standing, it was said that they would sit and that they would sit on Moses' seat, which was the seat of authority. So when it says that Jesus sat down in that scripture, he's assuming a place of authority, and he begins to speak. And sometimes when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we think it's just all these kind of ethical truths, and maybe some things that will help us to feel good, or maybe we, we learn a verse here, we learn a verse there, the golden rule's in there, there's all these different passages. But what Jesus is doing here is not just giving us some random ethical truths, what Jesus is doing here, he is giving to his disciples some guidelines on how they're supposed to live. This is a sermon on what discipleship should look like. It's a lesson to his followers. He's telling them, this is how you live right side up in an upside down world. And this is critical for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. We have to realize that in a world that's upside down, we often live by a different set of values. What's important to us might not always be what's important to the culture or the world around us. Our goals may be different. Our values may be different. And that's why it's important for us to take time to look at this, this sermon. Now, the Sermon on the Mount begins with, with nine statements from Jesus that all begin with the word blessed. Oftentimes, and maybe you know this, oftentimes we refer to those, those first nine statements that begin with the word blessed as the, does anybody know we call them the Beatitudes. And in fact, I remember being a kid in Sunday school class. I had to learn the Beatitudes, kind of memorize them and go through them. What we're going to do for the next few weeks is each week we're going to take one of the Beatitudes. We're going to talk about what Jesus was saying. And then we're going to look deeper into those chapters, five, six, and seven of the Gospel of Matthew at the Sermon on the Mount and see how what Jesus goes on to teach in these passages connects back to that Beatitude and helps us to understand what Jesus is teaching in this famous Sermon on the Mount. So we'll begin today with the first one, Matthew chapter five, beginning with verse three. Look at what Jesus says. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now all nine of these beatitudes begin with the word blessed. So it's probably good for us to stop for a moment and, uh, and kind of figure out what does that even mean when Jesus says that? Sometimes, and sometimes we say it different ways. Sometimes we say blessed. Sometimes we say blessed. I, I catch myself saying it in different ways at different times. But what does the word mean? Sometimes, and you'll even see some, some people translate these verses in this way. Sometimes we take the word blessed to mean happy. But the truth is, happy is probably a little, I don't know, too simple. 
It's overly simplistic when we talk about this. When Jesus talks about this, he means so much more than just being happy. And sometimes when we talk about being blessed, we we say it in the sense of like material things. That if I have something, if things are good for me, then it's easy for me to say, I am so (laughs) blessed. But blessing goes beyond that. God's blessing isn't just material things. Does that mean that if you're going through a difficult time that God isn't there? Does it mean that he's not blessing you? Are we only blessed when we have? No, that's, that's not true. So this idea of looking at someone and saying, oh, they're so blessed because they have, actually, it, what Jesus says here is even deeper than that. And sometimes we even use this word blessed in almost kind of a little bit of a demeaning way. Have you ever, you ever known somebody who's just not quite getting it? You're trying to explain something, and they're not understanding, and it's like the porch light's on, but nobody's home. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor. A few fries short of a happy meal. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you're kind of trying to help, hey, let me help you walk through this. You're trying to help them go through it, and they don't get it, and you just go, ah, oh, bless your heart. Uh, Do you know what I mean? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. So what does he mean when he says we're blessed? Here's a few things. The blessed know joy even when they don't feel happy. And I think this is significant to, to, to talk about, that those who are blessed know joy even when they don't feel happy. See, being blessed isn't just based on your circumstances or what's going on around you. Remember what Nehemiah said? He said, the joy of the Lord is my So we find that blessing, not just based on, do I feel happy or not? But it's an inner state of well-being. It stems from patience and from hope. It's not based on what I'm going through right now, but it's based on my hope in the Lord. See, being blessed isn't just necessarily what is happening right around me in the moment. It goes far beyond that. Far beyond that is where I find my blessing. So let's say this. Let's say you're going to have some friends over and you're, uh, you're going to plan a cookout on a weekend in February in Toledo. You can do that, can't you? Praise God, he does love us. Hasn't it been beautiful? It's awesome. So let's say you're planning a cookout. Five o'clock. You're going to have your cookout at five o'clock. It's 10 a.m. and you look at the weather and it's storming outside. And you say to yourself, I'm in the midst of a storm I wonder if I should cancel my cookout. And you look at the weather and you find that it's gonna storm at 10, but it's gonna be clear by five. Five o'clock, the weather, sun's gonna shine, it's gonna be beautiful. You look at the weather, you see this is gonna happen. Are you gonna cancel the cookout at 10 in the midst of the storm, even though you know it's gonna be better at five? Are you gonna cancel it? No, because you know that as you look forward, that cookout is gonna be blessed. Even when you're in the midst of a storm, You don't gauge your blessing by what's going on in the moment. You gauge your blessing on what you know is true in the future. It's not always what you sense right now. So being blessed doesn't mean that I'm happy. It means that I have joy even when I don't feel happy. It's this inner state of trust and confidence and patience and hope. For a follower of Jesus Christ, it means this, that even though the world seems upside down, you know that God is in control, so you put your confidence in him. The blessed know they can live right side up when the world is upside down. And this is huge. It means we're not pessimistic. It means we're not fatalistic. It means our life is founded on hope. The state of the world does not have to determine the state of your heart. 
Well, that's good for some folks to hear. Because sometimes when we see the state of the world, which granted, it's kind of messed up, right? (laughs) When you see that, when you're frustrated with what's going on in the headlines or maybe in your own private world, you don't have to let that completely throw you off because the state of your heart, whether or not you're blessed, comes from your relationship with God, not the things that are going on around you. So I've got to be careful that I don't let the news determine what my attitude or my demeanor is. Instead, I'm supposed to shine, Scripture says, like a light in a dark world. How does that happen? It's because the blessed view life through the lens of Scripture with their focus on eternity. As I go through life, I realize that my values come from God's word, not just from what I think is right or what seems right in the moment. And my focus is on the future, on eternity, not just on what I'm going through right now in this moment. And that's different than what we sometimes hear or see. Because sometimes the things that I want to base my success on are things that are in the immediate, not the things that God holds out in the future. And that's a very different way for me to live. But sometimes I wanna buy into things. And I just, I just wanna encourage you, especially if you're in a season where you're making decisions. If you're in a season where you're making decisions about school or about work, maybe about a relationship, maybe about what's next in my life, make sure that you make these decisions not based on just what seems right in the moment, but make sure you're making these decisions based on truth on God's truth, on what he says matters. Because what's, what's Jesus say? John chapter eight, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. free. There's freedom that comes when we live in God's truth. You ever, you ever seen these stories where you've got an Olympic athlete that goes and competes and wins the medal and then you find out afterwards that they take the medal away because they were using an illegal substance? You ever heard those stories? They weren't playing by the rules. You ever been watching a football game? Your team's down in the red zone, and they, they punch that thing in there. They score a touchdown. You begin to celebrate. You're yelling. You're jumping in your living room, and you find out they called the touchdown back because there was a penalty on the offense, and now you don't have the points, and now you're crumpled in a mass on the floor crying. You ever been there? Right? Why? Because they didn't play by the rules. You can't win. You can't score if you don't play by the rules. And the truth is, when we try to do things based on our own rules instead of God's rules, then we're not blessed. Even though it may seem like it in the moment, even though you're celebrating a win in the short term, it's only the truth that sets you free. Only eternity will be proof of that. So as you're making decisions in your life, about your finances, about your relationships, about your work, about your purpose, about your destiny, make sure that you're making decisions about things that God can bless not just that seem to be the right thing. And then one other thought about this idea of being blessed, and I know for some of you, this this might come close to kind of crossing a line into something that seems like um, positive thinking or excess, but track with me here for just a moment. I think this is important to understand. As a follower of Jesus Christ, and remember, Jesus is giving guidelines here for his disciples. He's saying here that if you live according to his truths, you are blessed, Would you agree? So understand this, if you live like you're not blessed, then you won't be. If you're gonna live like you're not blessed, then you're not gonna be. You're gonna in some ways rob yourself of this blessing. 
Too many of us ignore the truth that we're blessed and then we miss out on the blessing of God. Now, I'm not talking about this kind of, and I know some of you may be familiar with this term, some of you may not, but something like name it and claim it or hyper faith or where you've got this positive thinking that you can just think your way into things or that God owes you something or that if you walk into your garage just before you go to bed and you look at your Toyota and you say, in the name of the Lord, that's a Cadillac, and then you close the door. When you go back out there the next morning, it's still a Corolla, okay? You understand that? Sometimes people think differently about this. You gotta understand this, that that you can't just manipulate God, but at the same time, if the way that you speak and the way that you live is constantly denying the fact that God is at work in your life, you're gonna miss out on God being at work in your life. Does that make sense? Look, part of this is in the way that you speak. Your words are critically important. Your words matter, and how you speak makes a difference. Look at this, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. It says, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Your words have the power of life and death. The things that you say, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? It's the power of life and death. Now, if you think about this, one of the biggest lies we ever buy into is sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You ever heard that? It's a lie. Because words stick. And they make a difference. And they can hurt the things that you say about others, the things that others have said about you. And I challenge even with the words that you say about yourself. Because words have power. That's why one of the most important things that you can do if you're in a tough place is not just hold on to God's promises. I think there's something powerful about us speaking God's promises. Why? Because when we speak them, we have power in some way. Is it like a magic spell? No. But when I remember God's words, it brings life to me. It reminds me that based on his promises, even if I'm in the midst of a storm, that I'm blessed. Does that make sense? It's not just in our words, but I think sometimes we we have to be careful that we don't say God's no for him. I think sometimes we look at a situation and we say, oh, wow, that looks pretty tough. There's no way anything could happen here. There's no way that relationship will ever be restored. There's no way I'll ever have the strength or the resource for that. There's no way that that could ever happen. And God says, did you even ask me? Did you even recognize that I want to be at work in your life? Have you forgotten Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, that says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us? Ooh, there's no way that's going to happen. And God says, really? Did did you even ask? You're supposed to live in a place of faith that allows us to say, God, I put my hope and my confidence and I put my trust in you. But if you live like you're not blessed, don't worry, you won't be. The other thing that's interesting too is I think that comes out in our actions. Especially for some of you that Maybe Christianity is new to you or, or living your life fully for Christ is new or maybe you've, you've recommitted your life to Christ but you're having a hard time because you keep kind of going back to some of those things that you know aren't pleasing to God but it just is, it's kind of, it's kind of the norm, it's kind of the default mode for you. I wanna encourage you, maybe you don't feel much peace or confidence or hope or you don't feel very blessed and in part it may be because it's hard to be blessed when you're not living like it. And that's a really important factor that he states here. And here's the reality. The blessed will be willing to change their thinking. That in the midst of a world that is upside down, 
if you're going to live in God's blessing, then it may be time to start thinking of things the other way. It might be to hold on to God's truth. It may mean you have to change some ways as you live for him. But this is what Jesus is saying throughout this whole passage. You can live blessed according to my standards. So what's that look like? Matthew chapter five, verse three. Let's kind of jump in to what he says first in these Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when he says poor in spirit, what does he mean by that? Is this a financial thing? I think what Jesus is saying goes the whole lot deeper than, than that. So let's, let's kind of unpack a little bit. First, the poor in spirit recognize the limits of self. The poor in spirit recognize the limits of self. It means that you realize that you cannot live life fully on your own. This really would have kind of struck them when Jesus said it 2,000 years ago. Because when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, if you were coming from a mindset of the Roman Empire, you would say, what? What do you mean blessed are the poor? Because the Romans gauged their value based on power, based on authority, based on wealth, based on what you had. So when you heard the words, blessed are the poor, you would go, that makes no sense. And if you were from a Jewish perspective and you heard Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit, you'd probably go, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. Shouldn't you be rich in spirit? See, as we'll see here in just a moment, so much of their worship was public. It was in front of other people. And you wanted other people to know how spiritually you were grounded and, and what you could do and what you had to offer. And so you were spiritually putting yourself out there. So to be poor in spirit didn't make sense. You wanted to be rich in spirit so other people would know how righteous you are. And Jesus kind of challenges that whole thing, doesn't he? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit which seems so backwards. What he's saying is this, you have to recognize the limits of self, not so much material poverty, but humbly putting your trust only in God. In a certain sense, it's recognizing your own spiritual bankruptcy that I'm nothing without God. One of the, the best ways that this is expressed, the Psalm 73 is this powerful story of a difficult time that the psalmist went through. And he says this in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I recognize that even in the difficult times, maybe some of you are in one, that I don't have the strength to do it on my own. My heart and my flesh may feel like it's gonna fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion. He's what I hold on to forever. See, the poor in spirit not only know their own limits, but the poor in spirit find their help in God. The poor in spirit find their help in God. And this is really important because some of us have been striving. Isn't that an interesting word? striving makes me tired just saying it. You ever felt like you were striving? Like each step was work? Like it was kind of laborious? Like you had to push on? When we were with the group from Calvary in Israel a month ago or so, we went to the Dead Sea, which is for me just one of the coolest experiences of, of my life. And 
You go out there, and what's so significant about the Dead Sea is that it's, uh, it's not only lowest point on earth, but the, the water there is 33% salt. So when you go in this thing, and you, you, you can't really understand it until you, you experience it, it's surreal. You get in the Dead Sea, and you lean back, you just float. Like, you're not, you're not going under. You go out over your head, you're just bobbing around like a cork in the water. And it was a blast to be out there and watch people from Calvary who are floating around out there just laughing like giddy little kids, you know, just, oh, look at me, until ah! they got salt in their eyes, and then they started crying tears. But that's a different thing, right? It was cool until we had to get out. We'd gone in at one part where the ground was a little bit different, but where we went to get out, and because of the, the salt and the water, and especially you got closer to shore, the mud that is there is just, it's, it's, it's nasty. Because as you get up, as soon as you put your feet in closer to the shore, I mean, you immediately are up to your ankles. So with every step, it was like, you know, like that. And there were rocks, and I still got the scrapes on my legs, and you just, you, I mean, it was work. Every step was striving. Every step was work. And you got the water knocking you around, and you're off balance, and you're out there, you're trying to do this, and every step was trying to move forward. And some of you, that's not just a story. You go, Chad, that's my life right now. I feel like every step, every day, every interaction with that person, every decision that I have to make, I just feel like I'm striving through this. It's difficult for me. It's complicated for me. And I don't feel very blessed. Again, let's go back to the psalm, Psalm 46, verse 1. Listen to this, poor in spirit. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Have you ever had to rely on God in tough times? Have you ever had to rely on God in, in those times? Those times where you say, God, I, I know you are my ever-present help, even though the world seems to be falling apart around me. God, I know you are my constant source in time of trouble. You're my refuge and my strength, even though everything seems to be quaking around me. It's in those though times, even though things aren't what you would want them to be, that you recognize that God is still there, that your confidence is still in him. Even when you feel poor in spirit, that's when you know that he's near you and he's blessed. For some of you, that's a, that's a good word today because you're in one of those though times and God would remind you that he's close to the poor in spirit when you're weary when you're in a tough situation and he's there right beside you and you can rest in the fact that even in the midst of that, you're blessed. There's, there's another angle to this too, though, that I think we need to think about. I mean, Jesus uses this interesting phrase. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And like we talked about a moment ago, that wasn't necessarily the culture in the, in the Jewish synagogues in those days. In fact, oftentimes, the issue wasn't that you were poor in spirit. You wanted people to know that you were rich in spirit. Watch what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. We go a little bit further in the sermon, and he says this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Isn't that interesting? 
He says, look, if you're trying to make other people see how righteous you are, you're gonna lose out on your reward. See, the problem wasn't that it was done in public. There's something powerful about public worship. When we come together and we worship together, when we, when we interact with each other and encourage one another, it's a powerful thing. The problem wasn't the, the public part, it was the purpose part. What was their purpose? They wanted other people to see how righteous they were. And what Jesus points out here is that God rewards genuine righteousness. He rewards it when we're poor in spirit, when we recognize that our righteousness is not in ourselves, but it's in God. So what I want to do in the next few moments is, is I, want to, I want to take a walk through these verses in, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, 1 through 18, where he talks about the righteous activities of that time, and maybe it'll help us to cultivate this, this poor spirit that Jesus talks about. Not because it's a bad thing, but because it's a good thing, where we recognize that our confidence is in the Lord. Because when we recognize that in and of ourselves, we are poor in spirit, then we become rich in him, and we're blessed. So how do we do this? Well, look at what Jesus says. He, he says this, I want to give you five practices of the poor in spirit. Just run through these real quick. We see it here in Matthew chapter 6. Five practices of the poor in spirit. First, Matthew chapter 6, verse 2. He says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. One of the traits of the poor in spirit, Jesus says, is genuine generosity. He says that it's genuine generosity that we give from a pure heart. It's the first thing that he mentions here. And that as we give, we give to honor God. We, we don't give because we're trying to impress. We don't give because of how we want others to think of us, but because as God stirs in our hearts, I think this is one of the, the true barometers of whether or not we honor God in our lives is how we give. And that's true in how we give to the church. It's true in how we give to others. It's true in how we give of our time and we serve and after Jesus talks about giving, he says this, verse five of Matthew chapter six. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Here Jesus is talking about the second thing that I would just call personal prayer. That there's times when we need to make sure for the, the poor in spirit to spend personal time with God in prayer. And he states this very clearly. Our, our prayer for some of us, the, the times we pray may be confined to when we're in church or when we sit and we have dinner and we bless our food. But when was the last time that you really spent time talking with God, communicating with him, and then listening to what his spirit might speak to you. For many of us, we've, we've probably cultivated that habit, but wh whether or not you've, uh, you've been in the church a long time or not, the odds are sometimes we get so busy that that gets pushed out of our lives. Jesus says maybe you need to pull yourself apart and, and, and go into a room. Maybe you do it in your car. Maybe you've got some time at the beginning of the day when you're getting ready you're by yourself, or maybe it's, a, it's the end of the day before you call it a night, or somewhere in your day, where you can stop and say, God, I, I just need to communicate one-on-one -on -one with you, that, that personal prayer. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be this exorbitant amount of time, but just where you say, God, I'm, I need to hear from you. It helps to keep our spirit in check and in line 
with what God would have for us when we find those times with him. Which then takes us to what Jesus says next. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Not only is there personal prayer, but I would challenge you, the third thing that's kind of a trait of the poor in spirit, is purposeful prayer. That when we pray, we pray with a purpose. See, the, the pagans that he mentions here, those that worshiped idols, they would just repeat things over and over again. They really weren't thinking about what they were saying. They were just babbling, he says. But when we pray, we talk purposefully to God and communicate with him. This is, uh, this is clearly an important part of our, of our faith because he says God knows what you need so you can be honest with him, you can talk with him, you can speak with him as you communicate. And for some of us, I'll just, I'll just be really honest, we may ask the question, well, I don't, I don't really know how to pray. How do I pray? Whether you're new to church or I think for a lot of us, maybe we've even been in the church a long time, but nobody's ever really helped us to walk through this. This was the question the disciples asked, right? If you look at how this passage plays out in the Gospel of Luke, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus gives them a model here. We'll read it here in just a moment called the Lord's Prayer. Does anybody know the Lord's Prayer? Yeah. I, remember, I remember learning this. I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight. It was a part of a class at church. And they said, here, here's, here's this passage of Scripture. We want you to memorize the Lord's Prayer. I remember going home and studying it and then reciting it to my mom, reciting it to my dad. Hey, am I getting it right, trying to learn it? And I remember going to the class on a Wednesday night, sitting in front of my teacher. He's got his Bible open, and I'm, and I'm reciting the Lord's Prayer. And I remember how cool it was when he said, hey, you got it. You learned it. You accomplished this. I learned the Lord's Prayer, but that doesn't mean that I learned how to pray. I, I had a memory verse, which is powerful, in fact, I think for a lot of us, even if you've never kind of deliberately learned it, you've probably heard it in different places that if we started reciting it together, you'd probably be able to at least mumble your way through it, right? But what about in your heart? Jesus didn't say, hey, learn the Lord's Prayer so you can just recite it and then you can check it off and say, hey, I prayed. It's a pattern for us to know how to communicate with God. So if, if maybe you're struggling in, in spending time in personal and purposeful prayer, Try using this pattern. Watch what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This then, Jesus says, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He starts out by affirming who God is, by worshiping him, by praising him, by speaking about how great God is and the relationship that he has. Then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you, do you know how many less mistakes I would have made if I'd pray that more often. <laughs> then he says, give us today our daily bread. Do you ever need anything from God? Do you ever have a request for him? You insert those there. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See the end of that, just how personal that is? Where he can even say, God, these are the things that I'm struggling with. These are the places where I'm even concerned about temptation in my life. Lord, will you help me in these areas? And what if instead of just reciting the Lord's Prayer, we allowed ourselves to sit with that passage and 
and even in just a few moments, to let it be a guide that would help us to know how to communicate with God in a way that was personal, that was purposeful, that would make a difference. Watch what Jesus says next here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Here's what I would call the fourth kind of trait of the poor in spirit, and it's what I, I guess maybe we'd call it forward forgiveness. That when you recognize that when you give forgiveness to someone else, in a certain sense, you're paying it forward to yourself. Some of the people that I know that, that probably would, would struggle with living in a way like they're blessed, oftentimes it comes from the bitterness that they have in their hearts. When we fail to forgive other people, it's just downright toxic. Even to the point that we're not able to fully live in God's blessing because what's that passage say? That if you don't forgive others, it hinders the ability that God has to forgive you. Not that he can't, but that you're keeping him from being able to because of your lack of forgiveness for someone else. This is, this is critical. And if you wanna live your life in a way where you're living in the midst of God's blessing in your life, it could be that one of the biggest hindrances that you face is your willingness to forgive someone else. And it was interesting because I started to move on from that thought in the last service. And I looked out and saw a couple of faces that um, just so you know, I, I can read your minds when I'm up here. <laughs> I know what you're thinking right there, sir, in the red vest. I know exactly what you're thinking. Not really, but sometimes your face gives you away. And when I, when I went to move on from the forgiveness point, I saw a couple of people give me this look like, yeah, that's easier said than done, buddy. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what he did. You don't know what she said. You don't know what. So how do you do that? How do you move past that forgiveness? Because it's easy for me to say, you know what? I'm gonna forgive you until I see you again, right? And then I see your face, that face of yours. And I remember what you did. I remember what you said. And now I'm thinking about it again. And I'm having a hard time forgiving you because you know what you did. You know good, right? It happens that fast, right? So what do you do? Forgiveness is a process. But understand this, you can't do it on your own. You will need God's help to move past that thing. And it may be the kind of help that you have to go back for more than once. And you have to consistently remind yourself that I'm forgiving you because God forgave me. Not because you earned it, not because you had a change of heart, not because all of a sudden you're nicer or I find your face better. <laughs> you know why I forgive you? Because I've been forgiven, and because I've been forgiven, God's love in me, through me, is able to forgive you and give you grace. But if you don't, if you allow that toxic unforgiveness to stay in, it could rob you from God's blessings. Last thing Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6 um, Verse 16, he's talking about fasting here. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. 
Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who, is, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What Jesus is saying here is sometimes we want everybody to know just how righteous we are. And you know what the poor in spirit do? You know what God honors? Number five, he honors secret service. Not that you're trying to make everybody think. Now, now look, that doesn't mean that people shouldn't see the fruit in your lives. And it doesn't mean that you won't sometimes do things that will be a blessing and honor other people. But the reality is if you're doing it for any other reason than to worship God, you're missing out. Which is why Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the reality is that he's... He's saying this as a note of encouragement to those who feel poor in spirit, to those who feel like at the time that they just don't have what they need. And maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you're in the midst of a time of transition in your lives. Maybe you're in the midst of a struggle. Maybe you you can sense and know what it feels like to be striving. Maybe there's something ahead of you and you don't even know what it's going to be be like, and that that fills you with some uncertainty. I I don't know what it might be. It could be financial. It could be relational. Get what Jesus says here. He says, blessed are you poor in spirit. When you realize that you don't have the strength on your own, but that your hope is in God, blessed are you poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom. You remember he's the king? He came to establish this kingdom. Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. We're blessed when we live our lives for something bigger than ourselves. We see that God's doing something bigger than ourselves. And we recognize that who we are isn't defined by that storm or that circumstance, but we're blessed because we're His. You know, I, I, I think I've shared this analogy before, but I think it's, it's so helpful here that there's been times, I'll just say this, don't you love being able to come back home? Like, I love to travel and I love to go. I love to go, but I hate being gone. And I love it when I can come back home. I know this is weird and maybe I need some professional help, but one of my favorite smells in the world is the parking garage at the Detroit airport. I'm being serious. You walk out and you get in there, you breathing in deep and you go, oh, that smells terrible and I'm home. Right? There's just something about when you know you're home. And, and I've had the privilege to travel to quite a few different countries. Even recently, Pastor Bill and I, through some missions experiences, have been able to be in some communist countries, some places where not only is it different from here, but I'm not really welcome that much. I'm not really feeling at home at all, even to the point that you know that maybe even you're being watched while you're there, you're being listened to while you're there. It's kind of a unique experience. And so you know what I do the whole time I'm there is right, right here in my right front pocket, you know what I have right here? It's this little blue uh, booklet called My Passport. It's pretty important to me because right on the front, it says United States of America. It reminds me that that's where I'm from. And even in the midst of of maybe some trials at times, I could be able to go, hey, this, this identifies me. This says who I am. This is where I belong. And even if I feel like I'm in a place where I don't understand what's going on and I don't know the culture and I'm not familiar with the language, I'm able to say, I do know where my home is. And there at home, I know I'm blessed. 
look, I don't know what storm you're going through, and I don't know where you are, and I don't know what you're feeling right now. If you feel like you're striving, or you feel like you're in a tough place, or you feel like you're far from home, rest in this. You are blessed because what you're a part of right now is not what really matters or what lasts. What you have is the kingdom of heaven. And even though you can't see it right now, as followers of Jesus Christ, because you're a part of that, you know you're blessed. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for, for just a moment. We're, we're just going to pray before we wrap up this service. And for some of you, you, you probably would say, man, I wish you'd pray for me. Because I'm in a place where I feel like I'm striving. In my home, in my job, in transition, in my marriage, with my kids, with my finances, with my health, with the future. I don't, I don't know what it is. But you'd say right now, I feel kind of poor in spirit. I feel like I don't have much strength left. And I know I need to rely on God. That's what's blessed might not necessarily be the storm that's around me, but it's knowing that I'm a part of his kingdom, that I can make him the king over this circumstance, and that I put my trust and my hope in him. If that's you and you'd say today, I'm striving and God, I need your strength and your blessing. Would you just raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Just you can raise your hand, put it right back down. Man, in this moment, I feel kind of poor in spirit. God, I need your strength. I need your help. Anybody else, you can raise your hand, put it right back down. Father, we look to you. And God, we thank you that our hope and our confidence is in you. Lord, your word says that we are blessed when we trust in you. And Lord, I, I pray for the one today who says, I feel as though I'm poor in spirit. God, I need your strength. God, I need your help. I need your sustaining power to be at work in my life. I can't do this on my own anymore. And Lord, what I need is you to come along and give me strength, to remind me that you are my refuge, my hope, my ever-present help in times of trouble. Lord, help us even in the midst of the times when, when an upside down world might be all around us, that we would live right side up, that we would be blessed because the poor in spirit shall have the kingdom of heaven as we look to you. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Father, would you send us out with your special favor, your wonderful peace, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.